Hey, hey, what's up, my man? Welcome to Unleash the Man Within. Thank you so much for listening today. Oh my gosh, I've been waiting for this episode with Doug Carpenter, Dr. Doug Carpenter, who is really one of the leading experts in the arena of sexual abuse as it pertains to men in the context of sexual addiction. And we talk at the end of this interview about why that's important and how sexual abuse and sexual addiction are not always discussed hand in hand, which is really bizarre. And I think that's why he's been able to position himself as an expert on the subject because because um, he connected the dots and he's put his story out there. He's put a lot of his frameworks that he's learned from his practice out there. And he's highly educated on the subject as well. Masters of addiction, doctorate in um, sexual abuse, specifically among men. So this guy is seasoned. He is a staple in the husband material community, which is led by our good friend Drew Boa, and I say our good friend because he is a friend of this podcast. And if you've been listening to this for any period of time, you know that anyone who's a friend of Drew's, uh, of Drew's rather, is a friend of mine. Drua, that would be a good nickname for him. Drua, you know, just mixes mix both his names, get it all done in one shot. Anyway, I digress here. Uh, Doug and I talked about a couple different things. We outlined kind of what is sexual abuse, why it's often misunderstood, why it's so complicated and hard to really understand. We also talked about how sexual abuse often spans much broader than we realize. It's not just the overt behaviors of molestation and intercourse, well, non-consenting intercourse, rape, all that kind of stuff. We really get into the weeds of it. And then we talk a little bit about the effects of it and why when you experience sexual abuse and it's not processed, how it can take its toll and have an impact and then on the back end, you know, we talk a little bit about the the healing process and what it looks like and why there's hope. And in the middle of that, we have a little conversation about the link between sexual identity and sexual abuse. It is absolutely fascinating. Uh, I found this conversation to be very robust. I was learning a lot and I had a couple of times where he kind of put me in my place. You know, I asked something that was a little bit presumptive or had a bit of an undertone and he was like, no, that's actually not quite right. It's more like this. And I really appreciated that about him. So you're going to learn a ton. Whether you have sexual abuse in your story or not, there are principles and precepts here that you guys need to glean to make a full recovery. Please listen carefully and enjoy my interview with Dr. Douglas Carpenter. So here's the million dollar question. How are men like us who work hard, have good motives and a God-given purpose supposed to fulfill the calling on our lives and the dreams in our hearts? all while establishing sexual integrity, thriving relationships, and a meaningful connection with God? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Sathya Sam. Welcome to Unleash the Man Within. All right, well, I'm here with a man that I have heard so much about these last couple of years, and I'm so honored to finally have you on the show. Doug, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, you uh, you have quite a reputation, man, and you're talking about a subject that is uh, very, very important and admittedly one that I probably haven't done a great job covering on the podcast up until now. So I'm glad you're here sure. and I'm glad we can dive into uh, a little bit about sexual abuse. Um, I want to I wanna hear a bit of your story as well. That's usually where we start, but I want to mix it up a little bit today. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about what sexual abuse is and if you could define it because... I think people, some people hear that term and they think about all the extremes, right? They think about rape and molestation and all that kind of stuff yes. um, and immediately remove themselves from the conversation because they're like, nope, this isn't part of my story. And as you dive deeper into the subject, you realize, <clears throat> no, sexual abuse takes on many forms and many. most of most of us have actually probably experienced it, maybe not even realizing that's what it was. And I'm wondering if you could just start there to get the ball yeah. rolling here. Well, we we could probably talk for a couple hours just on the definition, because you will find throughout the research that definitions vary greatly. In fact, my entire dissertation for my doctoral degree was on uh, the definitions of sexual abuse and how they vary across each state mm -hmm. and how that causes a lot of problems uh, in the definition, in prosecution, in handling victims and in handling perpetrators as well. Yeah. So I spent um, about four or five pages defining sexual abuse, male sexual abuse in the book. Um, wow. And it takes that many pages to actually define it. Um, what's easier to understand is if we more break it down into categories. So there's contact and non-contact abuse. 
So non-contact abuse is where maybe the person is trying to appeal to you online. They're having um, inappropriate sexual conversations with you online, like um, to a minor, uh, sharing pictures, asking for pictures, sharing pornography. Um, so those are non-contact type of abuse situations. And even if like you're in their home, they're babysitting you and they expose you to pornography. In some states, that's included as part of the definition of sexual abuse. Anytime you're exposing a minor to information that they're not old enough, according to the law in that state to be exposed to, that's going to be considered some form of abuse. So you have non-contact and then you have contact. Of course, contact is when you make any kind of of physical uh, touch connection with with a child, either with your body, uh, an object, or that you have two children touch one another, Hmm. or you're taking photographs of the child. Um, So, and then within that, there is intrafamilial and extrafamilial. So then it's broken down to, okay, was this a family member? was this an uncle, a dad, a brother, a cousin, um, or an aunt? You know, I, I mostly did all my research around males abusing males. So I have a whole nother book I'm writing about female perpetrated abuse, which there, oh. there are a little different issues that come up with that than if you're abused by a male. So so there's intrafamilial and then there's extrafamilial. And that's if you're abused by someone outside of your family. Now, in some states, though, it will, if you're perpetrated by somebody who has authority over you, like a teacher or a pastor or a priest or a coach, sometimes that will fall under the umbrella of intrafamilial because that person had power over you in some way that was very close, more intimate type relationship. So it all just depends on the state that you're in. There is no unified definition of sexual abuse. And this was a big problem in the 90s. If you are, if you're familiar with something called Megan's Law, Megan's Law came about because of this problem that because of the disparity in states, perpetrators were moving from states where there were heavy laws to states where there were mild laws. Jeez. Crazy. Yeah. So then Megan's law came about where all perpetrators have to register no matter what state you're in and what state you move to. And um, so there's been some corralling of of those issues, but there is still no uniformed or unified definition of sexual abuse. It still depends on each state and what they've passed as part of their legislation. Yeah. So I more talk about it in terms of um, contact, non-contact, intrafamilial, extrafamilial, and then several states, when it comes down to criminal charges, break it down into penetration, non-penetration, and it was it penetrated by a family member or a, a non-family member, or was there contact that did not involve penetration by an outside member or a family member? Okay, wow. So yeah, yeah that's, that's a big question. That's not a simple <laughs> question that you started with. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. And I, I'm glad I'm glad we started there because I think uh well for starters, yeah, the complexity alone should tell you just how important this subject is. Yes. And also that when you do hear like we've had uh, I, I we were talking before, I'm based in Canada. And there's been a huge story that's been kind of culminating these last few years around Hockey Canada. I don't know if you've heard anything about it. I've just, heard some of that. All this like sexual abuse that basically, you know, people were paid out of this discretionary fund to keep quiet about it. And yes. now people are sounding the alarm and it's turn- it's turning out that we're talking like decades worth of sexual abuse taking place in these arenas, in the locker yes. rooms and whatever else. And-, and then that comes into play too with a, what's called the statutes of limitations. So okay. each state can have a different statute of limitation of, of how, what's the time frame that you have to report the abuse? It might be five years after it's been perpetrated. It might be 15 years. It might be 25 years. Some states have no statute of limitations. So, you know, your ability as a victim to prosecute and retaliate kind of and represent yourself against your perpetrator can vary from state to state as well. 
Okay. Wow. Okay. That's fascinating. I did not realize that. So, uh, man, I'm so tempted to go down this, the like more judicial route. Cause I just find it so fascinating, Yeah. but, uh, but I do want to kind of cater it to the, the listener, you know, the individual who is maybe, maybe they're just exploring their own, their own story and trying to identify is this part of it. And if it is part of it, what can I do as, as maybe a starting point to kind of launch into that, um, how does what or what are what are some symptoms of somebody maybe later on if they experience sexual abuse? What are some indicators when somebody comes to you and maybe let's say they're oblivious, maybe they blocked it out, they don't yeah. have the recollection or 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 whatever, or maybe they're just playing their their kind of game of keep away, whatever yeah. it might be. What are some telltale signs? Go yeah, ahead. so you're asking another interesting question that I would expect inter- any interviewer to ask me. Yes. The problem with your question is the research shows that there is no what we we would consider a sexual abuse syndrome. Yeah. There is no true subset of criteria or symptomatology that would indicate that someone's abused. This tends to to be very idiosyncratic, meaning that it affects an individual in a very individualistic way. There are some themes that we can identify um for example like in children if they start displaying behavior age inappropriate behavior um or knowledge of sexual things if they're jumping up wanting to try to french kiss you for example would be one like you know where did you see this where did you hear about this how did you know about this so inappropriate exhibiting inappropriate sexual behavior could be a sign in a in a child. Okay. Um so but but with adults uh, that's the problem. This is so individualistic and it affects victims in such a different way and also depending on sometimes how they were abused. But even that doesn't even signify doesn't come together in a sweet package either because for sure it shows that one person can be abused one time and have an, a whole array of symptoms and another person can be abused several times and not exhibit many symptoms at all and yeah. overall the research shows that um 40 of men who are sexually abused will display no symptoms whatsoever are resilient wow. and can overcome it but 60% of men do experience some kind of, of problem relating to their sexual abuse. The number one side effect for men who've been sexually abused by men is sexual identity confusion. Okay. Almost across the research, in almost every every research study, which I've read hundreds of, that is the number one thing that will come out of it. because. When you're a boy or an adolescent boy and you're abused by another male, there is a lot of confusion about what we call in the literature body betrayal. So why did my body respond when this was something that I didn't want? Uh, Right. Therefore, I must be. I must be gay. Yeah. Why did I have an erection? Why did I find that pleasurable? Why was why did I have an orgasm? Why did the orgasm feel good? Why did I go back for more? Right. Why did I go back to experience that? Why did I let him do that to me again? Here's another big one. He must have saw something gay in me that I didn't know or didn't see and knew he could perpetrate me. Hmm. So it distorts their own reality of their belief in the self and who they are and what they represent, the identity that they're forming. So they immediately begin to question their own self, their own self-identity, their own sexual identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I have to imagine like the uh, the sexual identity part is fascinating and obviously has so many implications for the world we live in today. Yeah. But then even the identity conversation at large, like I can just imagine, like I've shared before on the podcast how, you know, I've had moments of same-sex attraction and my head suddenly goes to those places of like, I'm gay, something's wrong with me. You know, you start like you you just you start to your identity immediately starts to erode almost like in the flash, you know. 
And um, for yes. me, again, like I, it's it's been something I've been able to work through. You know, I'm very very fortunate, just like by the grace sure. of God, talking to experts like you. Like I haven't landed on any of those conclusions concretely, you know. But you kind of work through right. your sense of self and your sense of identity. So I can imagine, even if it's not impacting somebody's sexual identity specifically, their their whole sense of self in general would some way be impacted one way or the other. I'd imagine. Yes, because not only does it impact your sexual sex, your sexuality, it also impacts your sense of masculinity. Right. So somehow, because a male did that to me, or penetrated me, or forced me to do oral or something, now I am somehow feminized. Because right. you treated me like a girl, like you treated me like a, a, a female. Um, so I I can feel like I'm more feminized from that situation. Um, I'm perceived as weak. Here's one thing that that I have to work with adults all the time. As an adult, people will come in and disclose that they've been sexually abused. And one of the common questions they'll always say, "Why didn't I stop it? Why didn't I? Why didn't I fight back?" You know, and they perceive themselves as weak, as a weak man, a weak individual. And I have to, I have to remind them, you are taking an adult brain and you are now superimposing it upon the child that you were. Right. <laughs> you know, you, you were being coerced, manipulated, seduced. You know, perpetrators go through a grooming process where they get you to like them, to enjoy them, to enjoy spending time with them. You like yeah. the things they buy you. They like you like the things they do with you when they spend time with you. They become your friend. You develop a love for them and then they slowly begin to twist the relationship. Mm. You know, like I I use this as an example in the book and this is the easiest example to use. So say there's a single mother living in an apartment complex and she has to work and she has no one to watch this child, but the man down the street who's on disability or in the two apartments over is well enough that he can watch your kid and volunteers to do that. And so he builds a friendship with your kid and builds a friendship with you to where you now trust this man. The kid likes spending time with this guy. He offers him candy. He plays games with him. He'll throw the football with him, right. all these things. And then, you know, suddenly when we're playing football, I tackle you and I touch you in a way that seems inappropriate. But I can I can throw it off because, well, you know, when you're playing tackle football, we're going to be all over each other. You know, or, or when we're wrestling in the swimming pool, I'm going to probably touch you in ways that, you know, are accidental. And so they begin to confuse the child until they turn the, the touch sexual. And by that time, the child feels trapped. Okay. So that belief that you should have fought off your perpetrator, it, it becomes a very false narrative as an adult. Yeah. Yeah. It, I, I, and you can see how that could develop, especially because... You know, presumably when someone experiences the abuse, they're they're very isolated, right? Like it's it's very rare Completely. that somebody's just going and saying, Mommy and Daddy, guess what happened? Right. Um, or whatever it might be. So I guess a, a follow-up question would be so I, again, I understand that like you can't just say, Oh yeah, if you have these three things, you experience right. sexual abuse, just dig in your past, you'll find it. Totally get that. I guess I guess maybe a question would be if somebody is on this journey. And they're they're starting to just explore, you know, their their story, uh, some of the parts of their upbringing that have contributed to some of their misbehavior now. And maybe they want to see, was this part of what was going on? Like the one thing I'm realizing as you're talking, Doug, is just hearing stories is actually very eye-opening where you're like, oh, right. right. I, I Like now, I'm, even at the one example you gave, I'm like, huh, I don't think I don't think that ever happened. But I wouldn't have even thought to go there. And it was kind of bringing up right. memories. But um are there things that people can do if they want to at least explore this a bit more and see if this is part of their story? Or is it more like, look, you you would probably know or it'll probably come up as you just continue to work through your stuff and further the recovery journey? Yeah, well, well, I will tell you, there's a great website called oneinsix.org. So okay. the research shows that, at least right now, we can determine that about one in six men have been touched in some type of inappropriate way on a sexual level before the age of 18. 
One in six. Okay, wow. One in six. Yeah, and in girls, it's one in three. Huh. Yeah, it is very high. Um, I I would encourage any male to explore those ideas if you if you even have a question if you were sexually abused. And this is one reason why men don't tell is because sometimes they feel very confused about, well, was that abuse or was that not abuse? Hmm. Because maybe that person didn't touch me or maybe it was even a same aged peer who just had more sexual knowledge than me as the victim. So was that abuse? Was that um, experimentation? Right. There are even some cultures like there's a a big article about Jamaican culture. And in Jamaica culture, any sexual act that you experience as a child is to be seen as initiation. And they don't really count it as sexual abuse. So if another male abuses you, it is part of your initiation to learn the learn sexual ways. Oh, very interesting. There are a lot of cultural factors that come into this about how you might come to terms with and understand that you have been abused. You know, it's been shocking to me and interesting that I'll do these podcasts and then invariably I will get five or six people reach out to me and say, I never knew I was sexually abused until I heard your podcast. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for example, if it, if it, let's say a a 10 year old boy goes over to his uncle's house and his uncle has pornography laying out on the coffee table and the boy picks it up and starts looking at it. And then he gets an erection and the uncle says, Oh, what are you doing? I see that you're interested in this. Oh, I, you know, looks to me like you're getting erect. Let me show you how to get rid of that. And then teaches the kid how to masturbate. You know, a lot of guys will be like, well, my uncle was just like kind of showing me the ropes of being a man. Right. No, that was sexual abuse. Wow. He was giving you information that you were too young to be handled, too young for your mind to process and handle you were he exposed you to pornography that's illegal and then he exposed himself to show you how to masturbate and had you masturbate in front of him all those acts are illegal wow huh right and always and, and, and typically he, under the guise of right of oh yeah he was just like you said just showing me the ropes or oh, that's just my dirty uncle who's just doing what he does right right huh. yeah and many perpetrators that's how they were will lure kids into the trap is they will just leave things out that will cause the kid to be curious. And then they can blame the victim. Well, you did this. You picked up my ma- my magazine. That's my adult magazine. And you picked it up and looked at it. And then you got a direction. And I had to show you what to do with it because you had to then get rid of it. You can't walk around like that. And see how they they lure and trap and pull you in. Yes. And it seems so innocent and it makes you as the victim question yourself. Well, that was my fault. I shouldn't have touched his magazine or I shouldn't have been on his computer or, you know, I started asking him about girls. He asked me, it was there a girl that I liked. And I said, yeah, you know, Beth, you know, in my class, I kind of like her. Well, what kind of thoughts are you having about her? Well, you know, and then that they lead them into a very sexual conversation. Wow. Wow. That's fascinating. Also, you, you didn't know this, but I, I spend about two months of the year in Jamaica because my wife was born and raised there. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And, and what I mean, not that we've gotten to specifics, especially of the male experience, because, you know, yeah. um, whatever. But what you say, what you said is very believable because um, the way they draw the lines of sexual experiences and what's appropriate and not is just very different. So very different. Yeah. yeah. And it's like that in many cultures. Right. Right. Many so. Cultures. So does that fact, like, so I live about an hour from Toronto. Toronto is statistically the most multicultural city in the world. Over 50% of its population was born outside of Canada. And I I guess I'm curious, like, how does, again, this is like, I said I wasn't going to go down the legal route, but now I'm just too curious. How do those factors play in? Obviously, like, you know, if you live in Canada, you reside in Canada, you're bound by Canadian law. But just when somebody's working through their their stories or their experiences or whatever... 
how do you factor in the culture cultural experience when maybe like legalities aside someone's just trying to say well i, I grew up in canada by canada canadian standards this would be sexual abuse but uh yeah. but but jamaican standards this is actually just initiation or normal how does somebody work through that when maybe you have uh conflicting well, narratives <clears throat> i work through that and by how did it impact you Right. Did it leave you with what? What do you have that you are carrying now as a result of those acts and those behaviors? Has it impacted your sexuality? Has it impacted your masculinity? Has it impacted your ability to be sexual with another person? Has it impacted your sexual functioning? Hmm. Has it has it impacted um, how you see yourself as a man and how you relate? To, make, to other males or other females. Did it create a sense of same-sex attraction be, through conditioning? You know, if, you're, okay. if your first sexual acts were with another man, you very well may have been conditioned to be aroused to another man. Hmm. And just because you're aroused to something has nothing to do with sexual orientation. Hmm. Okay. And that's another big thing I have to teach men, you know, just because you were exposed to porn, pornography, maybe you were exposed, exposed to gay porn, maybe you spent the first five years of your sexual life involved with males or other boys, and now you have same-sex attraction. That doesn't mean just because you're attracted to somebody, and even, even you find parts of them or them arousing that that's your sexual orientation. This was conditioning. This was exposure. Hmm. Hmm. You know, and sometimes you have to tease those two things apart for people. Yeah. One of the biggest problems with sexual abuse victims is they've come to believe a whole set of lies and myths about themselves, the perpetrator, and the situation that that very well may not be accurate at all. Yeah, yeah. Now, I, I have a follow-up question to that because I've heard some people in the more um, liberal or woke camps who say, oh, that's totally false. It's not true. You know, like kind of the correlation between sexual abuse and some of the sexual identity confusion that takes place um, and the refuting it. But I know you mentioned earlier the research. There's good research demonstrating that at least a, a link or a correlation. Can you just talk a bit more about that and maybe some of the subtleties of it? Because I, I also know some people might hear this and they'll they'll just blanket everyone and say, oh, yeah, everybody in yeah. that, you know, the LGBTQ community, they're all sexually abused and whatever. And we know that's not true no. either. No, um, not at all. How, how at do all. you? How do you tease these things apart or how do you uh, – what, what is the actual correlation here? Well, okay. So the whole field of psychology is based on – the whole behavioral science of psychology is based on conditioning, right? Pavlov, Watson, all those people. So we have to look at conditioning and association. Hmm. You know, the, those two things play into who we are in, in the whole theories of learning, what you're exposed to. How you learn those things become a blueprint, a a prototype um, for how we act, behave, feel in in the future. So, you know, I will ask people before you were sexually abused, what awareness did you have of yourself or your orientation? Did you feel any attractions? What was that like for you? Um, what were your goals? What were your dreams? Did you one day think about growing up and marrying a female and having a family? Or, you know, I've had men who were sexually abused who were like, hey, I knew I was gay before I was abused. So I'm in no way, no way, shape or form saying that if you were sexually abused, it makes you gay. Yeah. I, I do think it through conditioning, it can be a, a factor of what you're aroused by. But sexual orientation is so multifaceted and so many layered that there's not just one thing that is going to contribute to sexual orientation. It's it's hugely multifactorial. Yeah. Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. But, you know, where conditioning can be easy, you know. Yeah. You know, yeah. we're just like, um, I have a guy right now who has a really strong fetish with lingerie well when we dug back to why it's because when his mom when he was a kid his instead of his mom putting her underwear in the dryer she would hang them up on hangers all around the laundry room and he saw all this lacy underwear and he just right. became so curious about it well that was he was conditioned 
yep. to have this kind of fetish because he was exposed to it. That's right. not hard to figure out. Yeah. <laughs> that's just that's just exposure and conditioning. That's basic psychology, right? Yeah. Yeah. I have to imagine like that part you just said the last two minutes there was probably pretty liberating for some of our listeners because I know that there are a lot of people who have, you know, fetishes or they experience same sex attraction and don't know how to talk about it, don't want to talk about it. They right. don't want to be blanketed or labeled or whatever, even though I'm sure there's that part of them that knows like maybe th this isn't my identity. There, there's some sort of inner conflict, right? And right. I really appreciate what you just said, Doug. I, I think that, that that's going to be very helpful for people that are listening. Well, I think we know dating all the way back to 1948 with the Kinsey reports and studies that sexuality falls on a continuum. It's not yeah. black and white. It's not an either or. And, and it can change from, I'm not talking gender identity. I'm talking sexual orientation. Yeah. You know, and, and attractions like you can be triggered to either one of the poles, homosexuality, heterosexuality, based on environment, conditioning, who you're exposed to, the type of person that you find attractive at any given moment. Yeah. You yeah. know, I, I think that can be somewhat fluid, although most people find a way as they're going through that maturational years of adolescence of kind of working that out and landing at a certain place. And then, you know, the standard deviation varies very little. Yeah. Typically. <laughs> typically. That's sure. not always the case, but typically. Yep. That makes sense. You know, but lots of things can affect that. Now, you're you're kind of hitting on another area of study that I work in and that I'm I'm currently in the middle of writing a book called Arousal versus Desire. Mm. Okay, come on. And this is where you have to understand the difference. I think our desire is the the orientation that we were like born with. Okay. Like, or if you're in the Christian circles, like what what is the design that God desired for you as as a man? Yeah. And then sexual arousal becomes all the things that was written on our sexual template as we developed that maybe pulled us away from what our true desire was. So now, as a man, I have this conflict. I over here believe that I'm heterosexual, but yet I was exposed to pornography at a young age, or I was sexually abused, or something happened where I now like see men in a sexual light, and I even feel some attraction to them. Or I feel like I'm not masculine enough and I long to be like this man over here. So then I feel some sexual longing and attraction for him. Hmm. But that's in your arousal template. Those are things that happened, that you were exposed to, that you were conditioned to, that pulled you away from what your true desire is. Right. And, and sometimes you have to determine, okay, is what I'm feeling right now coming out of my desire or is it just coming out of some arousal pattern or template that is that has happened over the years? Yeah. And, and am I, I okay engaging it with this or is my engagement in this unhealthy for me? And I need to stay over here in my desire. Like yes. if I if I am a married man, yes. It's not good for me to be over here having you know, anonymous hookups with guys because I'm sexually attracted to men as well. Right. You have to decide where am I going to live based on what you want your own mental health to be. Right. Yeah. And that that's such a key word you just used there, like what you want your mental health to be. Because I think I think sometimes in this conversation, it's more of like, this is the way I am. I'm just wired this way. There's not that distinction of like of even will or desire. Right. Um, some great word choice. And I, I, I think that's super helpful. Yeah. So the million dollar question inevitably then is when somebody has has gotten clarity on this of okay, this is this is what I want. Um where I am currently is a deviation from there because of conditioning, yes. previous experiences and whatever else. What are uh, again, obviously we're not gonna cover all of this in a podcast comprehensively, right. but what are some things that what does that process look like for somebody to to disband some of that conditioning, to work through it, to process it, to start moving in that direction towards the place that they yeah. want to be at. So if I started working with somebody who came in and all this, all these issues were coming out of them, uh, again, I would explore their early orientation feelings, 
and then I would walk through what what I call a psychosex psychosexual developmental timeline. Okay, can I pause you there just for a sec, Doug? Why, yeah. Why why is the why are early orientation feelings so significant? You mentioned it earlier, but I I, I would love for I would love for you to hear why why is that where you're starting? Because I would try to figure out what is your desire part, like what was the foundation for that desire part? Yes. You know, because then the experiences that you've had are are often the things that pull you away from that desire. And I want us to be able to, to distinguish between those two things. Okay. So it's and have the- language around that. So I un- I want to understand who do you feel like the base of who you are was before life interfered? Yeah. 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 No, that that's super helpful. Like it because it, it sounds to me like what you're saying is there, there should be some point in our life that we can reflect back on that gives us a, a I don't know, a, a clear signal or a clear picture of what things look like before, you know, there was whatever in, yeah. interference with, you know, the cares of life and whatever else it might be. Right. And, and, and that's not always the case. I mean, sure. you know, but that's usually where I at least start my questioning to try to get to know the person on that level. Yes. Um, you know, but I mean, some issues like this can happen long before a child has full awareness. Like, let's say a child grows up in a, a fatherless home or a home where the dad is very abusive or neglectful. You know, that longing to connect with another male could begin at a very young age out of neglect. Yeah, right. It then becomes, most things become sexualized in puberty. Yeah, you know, right. you read Robert Masters books like some, some he has great explanations of how boys sexualize thoughts and and behaviors and feelings. We sexualize almost everything as teenage boys when that surge of testosterone hits us. I remember those days. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we'll masturbate to celebrate. We'll masturbate to feel better. We'll, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, it we just tend to sexualize a lot of things. So, yeah. you know, a lot of those feelings and longings can then be paired with masturbation and fantasy and orgasm and become very sexualized for us. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So, so circling back. So you start with yeah. early orientation feelings and then what, what does it look like? After and then that? walk through the psychosexual developmental timeline. So what experiences did you have? At what age did you really start to recognize that there was a difference between boys and girls who taught you that? How were you exposed to that? How were you talked to about sex? Who told you about sex? Who exposed you to anything of a sexual nature? Um, you know, at what age did you start noticing the opposite sex or the same sex? And what feelings did you have around that? What experiences did you start having? Were there any instances of abuse? Um and who perpetrated that? How did you feel about that? Mm-hmm. You know, the one of the biggest areas that I look for is the research shows that boys are average age of abuse for boys is between age eight and nine. And wow. that's what Freud would call the latency period of psychosexual development. Right. In that stage, boys are really exploring the world world about what am I good at? What can I do? I'm learning the the amount of learning that happens between the age of ages of six and 12 is just exponential Hmm. because you learn so much about the world and how it operates and how a plus B equals C. Hmm. But when, and sexuality is fairly dormant during that time, during that time, you're understanding more about how boys and girls are different. Yeah. Or in some ways, even how much we're the same. Yeah. You know, but at some point when puberty hits, all that begins to shift and our mindset about the same sex or the opposite sex begins to shift. But if sexual information is 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 introduced between that latency period from six to twelve, um, it can often be very problematic. It, it's like it's like getting in a car. And pushing the gas pedal to the floor before you put it in drive. Right. It's like charging something up that is not ready to be charged up. It's revving curiosity that shouldn't be that curious yet or ex- exploration mm-hmm. of behaviors that, 
the child's mind and body are not ready for. Hmm. Um, so that's pr very problematic. Also, the research shows that any addictive behavior that a child begins by the age of 14 is more than likely going to be a lifelong struggle. Jeez. Wow. So that really concerns me for our current generation because what's the average age of exposure to pornography? Yeah, it's young, right? Nine it's eight 13. years old. Is it eight now? Wow. It's eight years old, according to the current research. Dang. Yeah. So we have a bunch of eight-year-olds who are in the latency period yeah. being exposed to sex, imprinting on sex, not onto a person. Yeah. And they're beginning an addictive behavior six years before the research shows that this will be a lifelong struggle. So we are ending up with a generation with a, over a vast majority of porn addicts. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it's, and it's that early, like early conditioning that's happening in those critical stages that, like you said, statistically sets them up for a lifetime of it. And we know that, yes. we know that, you know, we know what's possible. We know that doesn't have to be that way. But, right. um, and, and that's where I, that's the reason I wrote this book hmm. is because I have a master's in addiction and I've worked in the field of addiction for almost 30 years. Okay. But I've also worked with mostly men and around sexual trauma. And I saw such a link between these two things. But every book I would read about sexual abuse, none of them ever linked it to sexual addiction. Huh. And so I thought, well, I'm going to have to write my own book because I'm working with all these clients and I'm, I, I have these insights and I'm helping all these people, but there's nothing out there helping people outside of the people I can see in my office of understanding this. Because if you awake yeah. those kinds of desires in a child through sexual abuse, that sexuality becomes turned on inside of them. And then it just continues to generate. And it often leads to issues of that indicate sexual addiction. I have multiple partners. I have sexual anorexia. Yeah. I, um, I have sexual dysfunction as a result of my sexual my sexual ex exposure and what's happened. Um, I'm I'm overly sexed, so I'm just addicted to pornography just on a continual basis. Yeah, I have serial affairs, you know, and all this. And, it, and invariably, I would be working with people, and I would ask them about sexual abuse, and they would be like, well, "No, I wasn't sexually abused." And then I would start probing with questions, and they're like. Oh my God, I think I was sexually abused. Yeah, right. Yeah, you were. You were exposed to something you were never supposed to be exposed to at an age that that pushed your gas pedal to the floor long before your body was prepared for it. Yeah. You know, yeah. I have these guys come in and talk to me like, well, I started being abused at eight and I was having dry orgasms and didn't even know what they were. Huh. Well, that's because your body's not prepared to have an orgasm until like age 12. Yeah, that's right. You know, but you were so sexually charged, you were masturbating before you could even ejaculate. Yeah. Jeez, it's crazy. You know, there, there's, and I'm not saying every sex addict was sexually abused. And I'm yeah. not saying every person who's sexually abused is going to be a sex addict. However, I can tell you that for a good, a good majority of people, those two things are linked. There yeah. is a correlation Correlation is not causation. Correlation yeah. <laughs> between sexual abuse and then later sexual addiction. Yeah. And we have to treat both of those things as, as an ethical, good clinician. I have to look at both of these things. It's not going to do any good if you come in as a person who's having sexual problems and I only address half of the issue. Hmm. Yeah. Or if, if I don't, if I'm working with you about your sexual addiction and I don't spiral that back to your origin story, to use a Drew Boa word, <laughs> <laughs> you know, where, where is your origin story? Yeah. Where did this light switch get flipped on? I, I have to understand that to understand how you arrived in the sexual addiction. Yeah. Yeah. I'm grateful. I'm grateful to hear that you're you're writing the books you're writing, you're doing the work you're doing and shining a light on these things because 
I think especially like I I can speak maybe a little bit more about the like the Christian circles, you know, being a pastor for 10 years myself and all that. These obviously the whole subject matter that we're discussing is is generally quite hidden. But yeah. then I think especially these intricacies between, you know, origin story and addictive behaviors and everything in between often overlooked or ignored or or whatever it might be. So this is um this is super helpful. Maybe maybe one last thought um is for people who are hearing this and maybe they they're feeling the they're feeling that thing where it's like oh he's he's I think he's hitting on something that's here. Yeah. Um that can be a scary thing, you know, uh yeah. to to even think about like having to explore this and um I was having a conversation with someone recently who was like, you know, I I didn't want to come to you because if I come to you, then I'm an addict. And if I'm an addict, then I'm this and that. And what are people going to think of me? And, you know, is my whole life going to going to change? Am I going to lose this and lose that? And, um, you know, we can trans- translate those feelings into just about any kind of major transition in life yeah. or you yeah. know, major discovery yeah. revelation. What, what would be a, a good step maybe for somebody to take after listening to a podcast like this that's feeling that way? Well, naturally, I'm a clinical psychologist, so I'm a big proponent of people going to therapy. Right. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And, and I would encourage people when they come in, when they're worried about things like that, let's not worry about the labels. Let's yeah. not care about the labels. I want to know what your experience has been. Yeah. I want to hear about your story. I want to hear about your life. I want to know about your experience. And and how did you get to be the person that you are? And who's the person that you want to be? Yeah. And how yeah, can we that. take where you're at and write a roadmap to help you get to the person that you want to be? Yeah. That's yeah. what's important, not the label. I don't care about the label. Yep. 100%. Labels can change. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I want to help you get to where you want to be. I want you to end up fully living in desire. Yes. Where you feel whole, complete, and fulfilled. Yeah. You know, and where you've been able to resolve any hurts, traumas, hangups that you've had from the past. Yes. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, you know, Drew and I are very close. And and yeah. uh, so he he pushes people like care, compassion and curiosity. Right. Yeah. And I'm the same way. Like I, I just push people inner into your story, enter into your story with care, compassion, and curiosity, not, oh, I don't want to go there. I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to face that. I don't want to label that. I don't, you know, approach yourself with those issues and really get to know you Yeah, and yeah. what you want. And, and you know, to I think that, to use a Jay Stringer line, if you chase the pain, you'll find the healing. Yep. Right. Right. And I so believe that. Yeah. If you will take the time to examine your hurts and pains and traumas, it will point to the road to healing. Yeah. And sometimes you need a, a healthy, good professional to help you get to where you want to go. But there yeah. are plenty of people out there who can help you do that. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. you can always buy some books to read too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we will put links in the show notes to your books. Uh, you do have a website as well for people that I do. Uh, that would I'd like to find out more about your services. I mean, you're doing such a good work, Doug. And uh, like I said, shining a light on, I think, uh, a kind of a, a myriad of, of interconnected subjects that yes. are not always discussed in a space that is already relatively taboo and hidden. Yes. So thank you for the work you're doing, man. Really appreciate you and you. appreciate your time today. I appreciate being here. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Well, there you have it. That was incredibly rich. I'm so grateful for Doug and his work and for him taking a little bit of time to come out on the podcast. We had a lot of fun together and we had been hearing tons about each other. So it was cool to finally link up and do an interview. So uh, his resources are all available to you. We put a link in the show notes for you to go check him out. He has a couple books. His books are excellent. You will learn a lot from them. And I know that some of you listening to this know that you need to go work with him. So please don't waste another minute. The link is in the show note for you to go find out more about his services, book a time with him and get the ball rolling on that. In the meantime, if you are looking for a comprehensive system to get to the roots of the issue, something that's going to talk about, you know, uh, inner child work and abuse and trauma, we'll also offer you practical parts of recovery with a biblical foundation, a science-backed lens and everything kind of in between. We do community, coaching, the whole works. If you're looking for something that's really premium, full-on, comprehensive, 
I'd love for you to consider my program, Deep Clean. This is a program I built with my bare hands. Okay, this is not like some, you know, curriculum that's a little bit makeshift from a bunch of different pieces. I literally started from the ground up with all this stuff, factored in tons of research. You know, I was a university researcher for years, also factored in tons of scripture. I was a local church pastor for 10 years. We sandwiched all all of it together. We built a team of world-class coaches around it. And we are helping guys get free in droves. If you want to be part of this incredible community and you want to have your life finally turned around and finally rid of the roots of pornography, this is your chance to do it. There's a link in the show notes to book a call with someone on our team. On this call, we do two things. We want to know what is your situation. Tell us everything that's going on. And number two, does our program actually fit what you're doing? Full disclosure, we turn down about 60% of the people that we speak with. It's not a good fit. It doesn't end up moving forward. However, um, that is really best determined on the call. And so you'll probably have a clear idea if it's a fit. We'll have a clear idea if it's a fit. And if it works out, we'll move forward. And if not, we'll redirect you to some other resources that hopefully will help you make a lasting recovery. So the link is in the show notes. You can book a call right now. We'd love to speak with you. In the meantime, much love to you guys. Share this. If you know somebody who's gone through sexual abuse, make sure you share this content with them. You just might change their life. In the meantime, I'll talk to you guys soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. It's Sathya again. Thanks for listening to Unleash the Man Within. I wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a free ebook that I wrote for you called The Ultimate Guide to Porn Recovery. It provides a basic framework for the recovery process and a few of my top tips completely free of charge. You can get it now at www.ultimaterecoveryguide.com. That's www.ultimaterecoveryguide.com. Now, if you've been impacted by the podcast and you want to show some support in less than 60 seconds, there are three ways you can do that. First, you can leave a rating or review on your podcast platform. This lets people like you know that the content here is valuable. Secondly, you can share this episode with someone in your life that might benefit from the content. If you're passionate about helping other people experience freedom and success in their lives, this is one of the easiest ways to do that. And lastly, you can subscribe. I personally only listen to the podcast that I subscribe to. If you're seeking daily encouragement, guidance, and insight in your recovery journey, I highly recommend subscribing to Unleash the Man Within. Thanks for listening. I look forward to connecting with you very, very soon. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast by Sathya Sam and his guests are for general information only and should not be considered medical, clinical, or any other form of professional advice. Any reliance on the information provided is done at your own risk.